All right, welcome back to the podcast. And this is episode 70. Seven zero. All right, you need to start helping me now plan for what should we do on the 100th episode? That's like 30 away. It's going to go fast. It is. Last year, I don't, I did, I think I did more than 30 episodes. So uh, I suspect that's going to go fast. Anyway, I should do something special for that. Help me figure that out. Also, if you're new to the podcast, one, I want to give you a shout out. So send me a DM. Let me know that you're new and you're listening. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I have a Twitter account, but like I don't actually go on there. So if you message me on Twitter, I probably won't see it before Christmas. So don't message me that way. Uh, but I will put my my social media in the comments of the show notes and you can message me that way. I want to know that you're new and you're listening. And also you should just know that this has kind of been slow going. So pretty much anything before 2020, I mean, you just take what you get. All right. Some of the content is pretty good. The quality, not so great. Really been working um, this last, these last 12, 14 months to improve on the quality. So, so yeah. Uh, but I have some new guests coming on the podcast lined up. I'm excited about these guests and I have some starting to be able to draw in some women clergy from other denominations as well. So that's been great. All right. In this podcast, I interviewed Janelle Ramsey and she is out in California, California. She's out in Colorado. Uh, she has a podcast called Brew Theology. I'll put all that in the show notes as well. And we talk about her deconstruction, deconstructing her faith. We talk about this idea of embodiment and in particular that, well, the, 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 this idea of embodiment, we get into that when we talk about the most recent book that she helped edit and that it was one of the themes of that book. So we talk a little bit about that and the role that purity culture and body shaming plays in our disconnect from our bodies, right? We are called to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. And so some of this disconnect with embodiment, uh, I think is paralyzing us to really be uh, his hands and feet here on earth and to really live out the kingdom. Uh, so we talk about that. We talk a little bit about open relational theology. I, I know like almost zero about open relation relational theology. So I should just tell you that uh, as a heads up. So all of this is new to me, but I wanted to explore it a little bit. Obviously there are pros and cons. Uh, I am you know, very Wesleyan in my theology. So, so there are going to be things that are different from th things that will be similar and then things that will be different in our different theological stances. But I think that it's good for us to at least have an idea of the different theological perspectives that are out there floating around. You know, we tend to know the big ones, maybe Reformed theology, we understand Wesleyan theology. We might know a little bit, we might understand a little bit uh, about Catholicism and how some of their doctrine is different from our own. Uh, but it's good to always be exploring and expanding our understanding 
of the people around us and how they are processing their faith. Uh, and then we also talk about, and there's, se- well, there's several books that we mentioned in this episode, and I will put all of them in the show notes. We talk about Divine Dance by Richard Rohr. I think we mentioned N.T. Wright, a couple of books that Janelle Ramsey has either helped author or edit. Uh, those will all be in there. Um, but then we also talk about this idea of trusting the process. So for those of you who are expo- exploring ordination you're, or you're in that process and you're moving towards ordination, um, even, well, even after we are ordained, there's still amount, there's a certain amount of trusting the process. Um, I need to have a, I need to do an episode just on that. But, you know, the process is supposed to help us with self-awareness uh, to begin to put some kind of parameters or a sketch around what it is that we believe. Sometimes in that process, we find out where we're not supposed to be, right? So sometimes when we're going through the process, we discover this isn't where we're supposed to be. We are meant to be over here or we're meant to be over there. Maybe it means we're supposed to be in a different denomination. Maybe it means we're supposed to be in a different uh, local church. Maybe it means we are supposed to be expressing our call in a different way. Maybe not as a lead pastor, but uh, heading up a nonprofit or not in a nonprofit, but leading a church and become, or becoming a church planter. So the process is important. And so when you listen to this episode, I want you to pay attention to that because she's going to talk about her process as she was moving towards ordination that in, in that she's like, no, this is not where I'm supposed to be. And so she ends up leaving her denomination. And so I think I want to maybe frame it, you know, have like a frame of reference for you as you're going into this episode to remember that's the point of the process. The process didn't fail. The process did what it was supposed to do. It was to help her uh, discern her next steps. And so that's, and so that's what it, it did for her. The process is here to help you discern your next steps in your call and your faith. So I just want to posit that idea to you because, okay, maybe this comes out a little bit out of the book. I'm reading Seth Godin's new book, The Practice, and that we've gotten really hung up on outcomes and that this idea of trusting the process uh, and that it's going to, the process is going to shape us the way it needs to be. And so it wasn't a failure because she left her denomination the process did what it was supposed to do. Just some new things for you maybe to chew on that you hadn't thought about before. Or maybe you have thought about this and you're like, yeah, whatever. I already know that. All that to say, I think you're going to enjoy it. This just might stretch you a little bit. It's okay. Enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church Because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Hey, so, well, let's just talk about where are you now? Like, where are you serving or working? Like, uh, ministry-wise, where kind of where are you 
Um, yeah. And then we'll kind of talk about how you got there. I live in Denver and currently my kind of my primary ministry is through an organization called Brew Theology and not Nazarene in that we do drink alcohol, uh, but we do have a coffee and tea logo so that people that don't imbibe with alcohol can participate. And our what we do is create a curriculum piece and study guides where we have conversations around topics around theology, philosophy, and social justice. And originally, when we started, it was much more focused on kind of post-evangelicals. But as we continue to grow, uh, we've become much more interfaith. And so we, we will invite people in from all different traditions, talk about different theological theologies between them and um, just kind of work to expose people to ideas and have meaningful conversations around those topics. Yeah. And now you have a podcast. Okay. So it's Brew Theology, but it's you. Who else is on the podcast? You and you have one or two. Ryan Miller is my co-director and he just moved from Denver to Waco, Texas in July. So we'll continue doing podcasts. We'll just be on Zoom like this. Yeah. So you, the two of you do it together. So you do the podcast. Now your curriculum and stuff, is this design, would you listen to the podcast and then do the curriculum? Or is this kind of a small group sort of thing? How how is it designed to play out? So it originally started with the curriculum and the small group discussion. And so the way that worked before the pandemic is we would, we use meetup and people will meet at a pub. And so you'll have tables of six to eight people that discuss the curriculum. And then what we would do is just go and the podcast was just a recording of Ryan and I and a couple of our people having the conversation. So it's a pretty low key thing in that we're not, we don't usually plan any of it. It's really just, you're getting the the listener gets to listen to the conversation. So given that we have 170 episodes, people can go listen to the podcast before they'd run the curriculum with their group if they want to, but it's not required. So it's it's not like a, a a sermon alternative, right? Cause I started thinking like maybe it was like that kind of idea. More of, I would say kind of a Sunday school or small group alternative. Um, And we have, we do have people that um, attend a church. And this is kind of one of those supplemental things that they do. So it's not meant to be a replacement. It's meant to be, um, something that adds to your spiritual experience experience. I know you're not in the Nazarene church now. Did you, did you wind up in a denomination or are you kind of non-denominational interdenominational? Where did you end up on all of that? Um, when we first moved, we went to a little independent church here and, they did not have the greatest ending uh, during our time. And so we did attend an ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, for several years. And currently, uh, we're not attending anywhere, uh, but I work with interfaith groups around Denver in several capacities. So I'm in a, an interesting space right now where I still label it. every week at Brew Theology, we pick a label. And so I will often say progressive Christian, um, but I find my home in the interfaith community. And so I'm still working on that. Well, and so in some ways you've deconstructed, but you haven't completely reconstructed where you're going to, where you've landed. Yeah. So, um, and, and I do want to get into that a little bit more. 
Um, but I want to come around first. And I know you've written a book. Didn't you co-wrote a book recently? Yes. With Tom Ord, right? Correct. We just talk about that book a little bit. Sure. Because it has to do with open relational theology. And I, w- I want to dive into that a little bit. So the, uh, the book that I helped edit with Tom was called Women Experiencing Faith. And I took essays from 50 women, m- many of them are Nazarene or were Nazarene, uh, talking about their different experiences. And as the essays came in, um, we grouped those around different topics like body and gender um, and call. And so in the, in the book, you'll find different sections around those things. And mixed in there is a lot of expressions of kind of open relational theology where as people have evolved and changed and deconstructed, um, often that sense of a freedom that exists in God's action in the world and on our part to play in the world um, is very evident in those stories. Um, But that particular book is really about women's experience and what the church has been like for them. Um, and then I've worked with Tom on some other projects. And so I have essays in a couple of his other process books as well. Yeah. It, women's ex- experience in ministry is obviously that's why I'm doing this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so is that your background? Are you like an editor or? My degree, I have a sociology and social thought degree and then went to NTS for an MA in theological studies. And while doing those things. I have done a lot of web design, graphic design, and editing. Um, And I did work for a book distributor for several years in there. Um, So I've done pieces of all of that kind of work. Because I was wondering like, okay, how did you, how do you make that transition? In in that book, the the idea of women experiencing faith and were most of these were mostly women clergy, right? Yes. Okay. Or either have been clerk, they may not be clergy right now, but they have been or served in some sort of ministry position. Was there like one theme or was there, were there several in there? Uh, there's seven and I actually did not bring a copy in front of me. I can grab one if you'd like, but it kind of evolved out of the essays as they came in. So my kind of general invite to people was I want to hear what, what it is it meant for you to be female in the midst of this journey that you're on? And then I gave some suggestions, but they were in no way, like they didn't have to choose one of those. And on its own, as I started reading and editing them, it just, they fell into very clear categories. And so I was able to um, put them together inside their category. And then I tried to arrange them in a way that that they kind of built on each other as you went through the section. Some of it has to do with just, um, you know, as we go through our experiences, a lot of them are going to be similar like that. So that they would fall into those, you know, like seven different categories. Um, was, uh, was there like one in particular maybe that resonated with you most? Yeah. I mean, story? I, the one that um, has actually helped me do more work was the one on bodies and, and, I guess the way we say that more academically is embodiment. What does it mean to be in my body and to be connected to my body? And uh, this is part of a larger conversation that's been going on for years about purity culture and the impact on women's bodies of this kind of teaching. And so 
what I saw there in those essays was women struggling to figure out like, how do I own, how do I become part of my own body? Because for many of us, um, our bodies became the enemy once we started mensing and um, started developing. And so for many women, they have had to completely reintegrate into who they are um, as they walk through the world. And that, it was hard to read, uh, but it was very powerful. I had some mothers that wrote the most gorgeous things about childbirth I've ever read. Uh, and to be let into that process with them was really beautiful. And so from there, I have also written on embodiment in kind of that open theology and feminist perspective of what does embodiment mean? Uh, to be honest, when I was editing the essays, I didn't even know how to describe that. Uh, it was just, it didn't make sense to me. And so I've had to do a lot of work on figuring out what does embodiment mean um, as a practice and as an influence in my theology. I'm glad you brought that up about the embodiment because that is, that is a huge element and we're seeing a lot of pushback on it. I didn't grow up in the church, so I have a little different um, perspective on, on it. You know, I didn't have that experience of purity culture, but I have, you know, female colleagues, well, obviously male colleagues also as well, who experience that just assuming some of my listeners maybe weren't a part of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just talk a little bit about purity culture and sure. maybe just the influence you've seen on women clergy specifically, but it can be just clergy in general too. Um, I think purity culture where I grew up, I grew up in Michigan in a very conservative part of the denomination. And so as far back as I can remember, it was all about like not cutting your hair, no pants at church, uh, no, absolutely no, like anything other than a high neck shirt at camp. It was always, how long are your shorts? How loose is your t-shirt? Are you, you have to wear a t-shirt over your bathing suit? Um, and so anything that veered outside of that was completely unacceptable. And this was just the accepted practice then. And so I don't think that we understood the impacts this would have later on. And where I see that impacting women clergy in particular is the struggle. It sounds so shallow, but I'm sure you've experienced it. And I have of trying to figure out what to wear because there is so much criticism about why are you wearing that color? Why are you wearing that pattern? Why do you have peep toe shoes? You know, I have heard the gamut descriptions of what has been said to women ministers coming off the platform that you would never say to a man in any setting whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, to the point that I know several women that just prefer to wear a robe, even though it's not part of our tradition, because it silences um, a lot of that criticism and that self-reflectiveness and criticism that then comes out of that when you feel like every time I go up on the platform to preach, I'm being analyzed for what I'm wearing. And that is not the point. Uh, my friend, uh, Melissa smith Was is a PhD student in Ohio. And she talks a lot about the way that women are treated 
um, as uh, either an icon or an idol and the way that bodies are treated as objects, not as people. And so I think that that is, is part of the struggle that we don't always put words to, but, but why is it so important what I'm wearing when I preach? Because it isn't from guys, but it certainly seems to be for women. Absolutely. That's why I planted a church. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little, I love that whole, this whole idea of embodiment. Like we could talk forever about that. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do, I want to swing back a little bit to the open relational theology. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I've started hearing more about it. And so I just thought it would be a good thing to introduce, you know, our, my audience to, uh, who maybe have never heard of this either. Um, you know, a lot of my listeners are coming from a Wesleyan holiness tradition. So that's pretty much all that they're taking in. Right. Uh, Although some of the stuff that they're reading is actually Calvin, but they think it's right. Um, kind of give us an overview. What is that? And what are some of the advantages or disadvantages? I don't want to say that maybe pros or cons. I don't know, to re relational theology that we should be thinking about. I think what the, the first time I ran into this was 10 years before I even understood what it was. And I, but it's a very helpful metaphor of what it is. And it's kind of thinking of a, a trinity of relationship, that I have a relationship with God, I have a relationship with others, and I have a relationship with myself. And that those things are constantly working and in relating to each other and interacting. And how I uh, remain open to that and respond to those things is part of this journey. And so that's not the whole thing, but that was a starting point for me that helped me shift um, from this very hierarchical view of God to a much more relational view of God, where how I'm walking through the world is also directly connected to how I'm connected to God. Along with this comes the broader idea. I think we often hear these cliches of um, this is what God wanted, or this is the plan for your life. And, and those can be helpful in talking about the future and my dreams and my hopes. But what, relate, what relational theology does is says that, that if we are in a relationship with God, an honest um, mutual relationship with God, where both parties enter into this, and want to build a relationship just like we do with another human, that the future has got to be a little more flexible than maybe the ways that we can describe it easily. That when we're in relationship, we don't always know which direction we're gonna go ahead of time. Um, something may happen in our lives that alters our path completely. And the beauty of relational theology says that God is not unhappy when that happens. God is right there with me when that happens and proceeds down the path with me. And there is a beauty and a freedom in that. And it does not take away from God's love for us, his um, ability to see all the options, his ability to know what the future could be, but it does allow us to genuinely walk in relationship with him and um, move forward into the future and not have to be so worried about like, is every single choice I make going to destroy my life? And that sounds really negative, but I think sometimes 
we talk about theology that way, that even when I'm in this loving relationship, um, if I choose wrong, it's all over. And open and the open and really relational theology really emphasizes that no, you're in a relationship. And so this, this God that loves us so much is going to walk with us through it. And I find a beautiful freedom there. And it's not the kind of not freedom in the sense of do whatever you want, but a freedom that says that God understands and, and loves me and knows me and wants the best for me and will travel with me wherever I end up going in the future. I I think that's true in the sense of we have adopted this, this idea that if and we talk about, right, this idea that if we got off the, if we get off the path, right, right, uh, that, you know, like he's going to strike us down, like all of a sudden grace is no longer um, available to us because we yeah. made one wrong turn um, or we went a different direction and we, we begin to discount, uh, we, I, maybe we confuse this idea of perfect love and sanctification with this concept of being perfect in the sense of yeah. never making a mistake. Um, you know, but we, but we are limited beings. We don't see the future and yeah. we do our best to discern what the spirit is saying to us. But, um, you know, considering all the different, I'm like, just think about all the opinions we have, you know, about, you know, God and any decision that we have in our lives in some ways, maybe we work too hard to try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. Um, So, and and I think that probably grace is, it's probably, it's probably bigger than that than what we limit it to. And and what you're saying does make me think a little bit of Roar's divine dance. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause there's a part where he talks about, cause we recognize that the Trinity does not have a hierarchy. Right. I don't, I I think there's some people don't realize that though. (laughs) Like evangelicals think that Jesus is actually higher than everybody else. Um, You know, maybe, maybe Pentecostals think the spirit is higher than everybody else. Um, And they're all working together. They it's, it's one God. We believe in one God. Right. And of course, then Roar says the Trinity is doing this divine dance and, you know, depending on whatever the situation is or the moment in time depends on who's leading. And then he draws us and then God the, the one God draws us into that uh, relationship. Yeah. And so then now it's, we are this divine dance with God. And that's part of really what grace is, right? That he pulls us into it and allows us to have a, a say in what we're yeah. doing, you know, that, that free will of, okay, now he's, he's actually enabling us and empowering us to be part of that whole process. Yeah. I love that. That's great. I, I have to read that several times though. That book will hurt <laughs> your head. Oh, seriously. <laughs> well, and it, maybe that's, I mean, I think that's fun because I love the Trinity. That's been one of my favorite um, like theological rabbit holes. And the whole thing of it is, is the more you read about it, the more it doesn't make sense, but the more it opens up opportunity. And I think that that's the, the beauty in it. And I think open and relational um, shares that the more you you wrestle with it, the more you enter into it, the more 
opportunity stands before you and the more ways that God can work in the world. And I think that's just, it's huge. So I don't want to, I don't want to use the word weakness, but what are the things about open relational theology that maybe evangelicals or conservatives would, would want to push back against? Like, what would be that, what would be that part that they would be like, yeah, I just can't, I can't go there. Yeah. I think one of the things is that it, there isn't an answer for everything. And especially in the world we're living in and the, the, the movement that our culture is going through, I think people really want hard answers. And the problem is, is that when you're in a real relationship with someone, we don't always have that. And that's hard. Um, That's really hard when, uh, for instance, someone passes away from an illness and there isn't a reason. It's just an illness and it happens um, and I, th- I think that we've been trained to want to be able to have the perfect thing to say, especially as ministers. I think that's something that, that we kind of take on. And the truth is that there isn't always a reason. Um, sometimes people just get sick. And I think that can be really disorienting for people that want answers. And I think another area that that this can be hard is that it also means that we have to open up some of our definitions, open up ways that we talk about God. So, you know, one thing for me is that I try to be a little more gender neutral when I talk about God, because the women that I interviewed, and we know that the numbers of sexual assault are so extremely high, using a male pronoun for God all the time can be really um, off-putting and can really become a way of separating us from God. And so what does it mean to refer to God as just God and not put that pronoun on there? Um, and I know for some people that can be very triggering, but it's really important that we remember the context in which the Bible was written, the history around when and where it was written, and to know that that God is, you know, big enough to handle it if we don't use the same pronoun all the time because we have a lot of uh, previously unchurched uh, people in our congregation um, or de-churched and they're de-churched for a reason a lot of times it's because they were wounded by the church or some of those they were given black and white answers for uh, uh, something that happened that didn't shouldn't have had black and white answers right there was yeah. no, there wasn't an easy answer but they're like force fed this easy answer and so because they couldn't get their head around that they just opted to leave and so uh and so some of them will struggle with that idea of you know masculine and and patriarchy and and of course some of it does is too because we've we've removed the feminine aspects of God from him, you know, yep. we've divorced, we've divorced that, you know, and yet Jesus is the one who says, I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers, you know, her chicks under his wings. So uh, we've stripped, even we've even stripped Jesus of his, you know, feminine analogies that he's tries to use to really uh, articulate that relationship that God wants to have with us. I want to talk a little bit about deconstruction. I've had a couple of people on here before who've talked about it, but I think it's different for everyone how that happens. Um, So just talk about maybe 
that process? What was there anything specific that happened or a series of things that happened where uh, that you feel like kind of led you down this path towards, you know what, I need to deconstruct my faith. I need to take these things apart and really look at them and examine them again. Um, and then maybe how it led you more towards this idea of open relational theology. Um, and of course, now you're, you know, you're labeling yourself a progressive Christian, which in some ways is a broad term, right? But right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just talk a little bit about how that ha- happened for you. So, so I spent many, many years uh, as a district licensed minister in the denomination and we uh, lived in Kansas City, which is a place with a lot of competition. And so it can be hard to go through that process there. And I've heard that from a lot of people. And, you know, we, my husband and I are both kind of the type A rule followers. So we did everything we thought we were supposed to do. Um, and it just wasn't working quite right. And we kept going and kept going. And in about, uh, 2007, I was speaking to one of our college professors at Mid-America and he mentioned a training called focus that, um, helps people, um, kind of re-examine their life, kind of take apart some things and expectations and, put them in a new light, um, to help you move forward. And that was a huge process for me. It was life-changing. I want to be really clear that it, it did not cause my deconstruction that was already happening. It did for me and my experience opened me up to seeing things in a different way that then led to more questions and, um, to a larger process. So I, I don't want to give the impression that it caused this, uh, but for me, it met me where I was and that's where it led for me eventually. So I, we, we did that and, I, and some things shifted in me and I started seeing the world a little different. The, uh, the LGBTQ rights issue was part of that process. I met a friend during that time who asked me to examine the text and really wrestle with it. And I had this moment where I very much felt a parallel between uh, what I was wrestling with as a woman in ministry, that the same kinds of verses that were used against me were the same kinds of verses that were being used against my friend. And once I kind of had, once I kind of crossed that bridge, it meant that I had to rewrite some of what I believed. There was no way around that. Um, so, and, and that was, I've read many books and studied the text and done a lot of work on that issue. And so that was kind of the beginning. And then we ended up moving out here to Denver in 2012. Denver's just really different than the Midwest and it's got a much more open mindset. And um, we went to a little independent church that uh, a friend had recommended and, and it was a good experience until it ended uh, and that happens in any kind of church sometimes. And then I started doing this interfaith work. And so kind of the big thing that happened after that church kind of fell apart, uh, my husband was doing some bias training uh, as a volunteer with his company. And I read, uh, there's an article in the book, The Hidden Brain, about cults. And 
he was kind of recounting to me what he was reading there and made this statement about how it is people find themselves in the middle of this when they don't expect to. And it just resonated very deeply with my experience. I understand that is not the experience of everyone in the church of the Nazarene, but for me, I was struggling so much to understand why I could not make it work and I could not figure it out. And as I started learning more deeply about gender bias and um, systemic discrimination, I, I will say honestly, and I, I don't want to upset your listeners, but I do think those are problems that the Church of the Nazarene needs to face if they want to continue to, to reach people and nurture healthy leaders in the future. And so having that realization and being able to learn and grow in those areas and learn how these systems function that don't really even necessarily have anything to do with the individuals involved, it's just, it's a systemic problem, really freed me to start uh, looking outside of that. And then, uh, I mean, the other aspect um, was uh, Tom Ord was let go from NNU. And as I was watching that process, it was heartbreaking for me uh, where I was at the time to watch that play out. And um, that pretty much was the door shutting for me. Um, it has been very difficult. I have been, I am a third generation Nazarene. <laughs> My grandfather was saved at a revival in Michigan, and my family has been in the church all of that time, and leaving has been one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it came to a point where it was either Jesus or the church, and I chose Jesus, and I am still, I, I love my friends that have stayed, and I try to support them in any way that I can. I know that other people are built differently than me and are able to do the work that I just found I wasn't able to do anymore. And so I have found loving acceptance out, out here <laughs> um, from other traditions in the interfaith community. And um, it has been healing and nurturing and, and positive. Um, and I, I think the one thing I'd say to someone that's struggling right now of where do I fit, just keep doing the work and know that God is out here too. And so God can be in the church of the Nazarene. He is in the church of the Nazarene. He's outside of the church of the Nazarene um, and find a place that works for you and where you are. Right. And I, and I think what you said too, about you, for you, you came for, to a crossroads where you had to choose between Jesus and a denomination and you can fill you know you can replace denomination with anything you know you can have yep. fill in the fill in the blank um of course we just watched our sister beth moore right leave her denomination yep. so um i and i think that that's a good point right that our, our our surrender we surrender to to god through jesus christ ultimately and so sometimes when we're walking that path we're going to find that he's going to ask us to do something that's difficult mm -hmm. um, and for you you're like well if i'm going to stay true to you this, this over here is not helping me to do that. So I'm going to go in this direction. Um, and, and I think we need to ask 
we always need to be asking that of ourselves. You know, are there things in our lives, um, relationships that we have, commitments that we've made um, that are hindering us to truly following Christ? Uh, and so whenever that, whenever that happens, then that does become an idol, right? And, yeah. and we want to, se- you know, and so, and so sometimes we have to sever that relationship in order to break the stronghold of that idol. And so for some people, that's not, it's a different denomination or it's something else. It may be a particular congregation. And so they have to move to another congregation. Maybe it's their job. Um, You know, it might be other individual relationships they have with people causing them to, to, to not be true to what Christ is calling them to do. So, um, and I think that, maybe we all need, maybe we can all learn from that process of deconstructing that, that there's always, there's, we're going to have to de- deconstruct our faith all along. Right. In order, because we're always going to have to be reexamining um, where our heart is aligned with Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I know, you, I know you're still working on reconstructing, I guess, right. <laughs> um, how are you reconstructing your faith? Um, does is brutheology playing a role in that? How does it play a role in that? So talk a little bit about the, cause we can, and I think I've heard, I, I don't know, I think it was Roar. I don't think it was N.T. Wright. I think it was Roar who talked about this, right? That sometimes we stop at the deconstructing part. We right. forget that then, okay, now what are we going to do? We can't just stay there forever. Right. Yeah. For me, I mean, brutheology has become my family and my, my spiritual kind of center. And, um, part of that has meant, you know, listening carefully and lovingly to my brothers and sisters. And so I have been pushed and pulled and, and encouraged to widen my view. And I really feel like one of the things that's happened is, is, is practicing widening my view. Now, yes, there are bounds around that. I don't feel like I have to explain that, Um, but practicing kindness and compassion and generosity and, um, inclusiveness, those have become things that I think are, are right in line with loving your neighbor. Um, and so those are the kinds of ways that I describe how my faith has, has, I guess, emerged out of this, um, what, what is, what is the hard work of being kind? What is the hard work of compassion? I, I think, uh, when I was inside of legalism, all the rules were there for me. And so I knew exactly what to do to get to heaven. Um, when you grow outgrow that faith actually becomes a lot harder because you've got to figure, you have to do the work of like, figuring out what is kind in this situation, what is compassionate, what is expansive in this situation, what is loving. And you have to really pay attention to a lot of the factors that are around you and it's work. So I guess maybe one of the things I do is I work hard at trying to figure that stuff out um, instead of relying just on some simple rules that don't apply in every situation. The other aspect has been my multi-faith work. I went to the Parliament of the World's Religions in 2018 in Toronto and total shout out if 
any of your listeners, you are interested in interfaith at all, like just even curious, the parliament is going to run in October online. And right now it is $50 to have access to a worldwide um, slate of speakers and traditions. And it, it was so transformative to me to, to see all of the good things of these different traditions line up to work to make the world a better place. And I think there is so much grace and mercy and love in that kind of work. And Jesus is not afraid to come to that table with me. Um, and I really believe that even if you, even if you're a hardcore conservative Nazarene, um, Jesus can come to an interfaith table and he will be okay. And the joy and the benefit you get from knowing your faith neighbors, I guarantee you that, that it is worth it. Um, it may feel scary. It may feel out of your box, but there is nothing that your Buddhist friend can do to take away Jesus from your heart. And so go find out what it is about their faith that is meaningful for them. I am so grateful for the rabbis and the Buddhist priests and the Sikhs and all of the people that have come around me to say that there is space for you here. They have been redemptive to me. And, and that is the right word to use. Like I really believe Jesus and the spirit has worked through those relationships to, to help my faith continue um, as I'm trying to rebuild and figure things out. I know that's not everybody's path, um, but I just would totally encourage you to cross the street, go check it out, go to a pancake breakfast at the Catholic church, if that's where you want to start, or, um, you know, go to a sick longer. This is a meal that they give every time they meet. Uh, they feed the entire community. Um, I, I promise Jesus can, can navigate that with you. Uh, you're not in any danger. Well, I grew up on fish fries in the Catholic church. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, and a lot of our congregation are previously um, Catholic or unchurched Catholic. So yeah, I, I, if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, uh, we don't have to be afraid of that. Exactly. We can, we can um, w listen graciously and, and learn. Um, I mean, if nothing else, we have to, we have to at least understand uh, their perspective and where they're coming from, if we're going to have any kind of a conversation that is going to have meaning or depth, yeah, you know, otherwise we're just telling them, no, this is what you have to believe. But Jesus listened first, it seemed like, yeah. um, and, and talked second, uh, actually he healed first, <laughs> then he talked, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, uh, and then he asked questions and then he, then he had said what he had to say. So we could, we could follow along his example that way. And uh, that's, that's a great thing to check out. I'll, I'll find the, well, actually, if you have, if you know the link, just shoot me an email and I'll I will make sure it's in the show notes. And just let, we, we do cuss on our podcast, just so you know, <laughs> so, just a warning. Cause I know that some people would not like that. Uh, I mean, I appreciate you sharing all of this. Uh, any, I guess, advice or 
encouragement or just thoughts to women who are wrestling with the call and the process. And um, since you've gone through the process and, you know, not all of, most of our listeners come from one of the Wesleyan holiness denominations. Um, so not, they're not necessarily all Nazarene, but, but just, just advice for any women who are wrestling with that call. Um, I think one of the, one practical thing up front, the world is not what it was 40 years ago. And I would encourage you to have a skill that you can do on the side to help provide for yourself uh, while you're in ministry. I know the dream is that you'll be in a church that's big enough to take care of you and to make sure you have health care and all of your needs met. Um, but I think what we're seeing in the numbers is that's not necessarily true. So I just would encourage you as you're preparing for ministry and doing all that study and work, what is another skill that you have that you can have on the side that can help provide for your family if you need to? Because I've seen many friends where um, they got to the end of ministry training and there wasn't necessarily quite enough finance there and they didn't have anything, um, any way to make money. And so I know that's one of those nitty gritty things, but something to keep in mind um, and not to discourage at all that God is not calling you to this 100%. He absolutely is and, and is calling you to serve, um, but our world is different. And so maybe it's okay to just acknowledge that up front. If you are feeling the call to ministry, then follow that call. Get your education. I think that's a critical piece in helping us find uh, balance and to know what we do know and what we don't know, what our blind spots are, what our gifts and talents are. Having that education helps us to help our people better. I would encourage you to. Uh, find relationships with other clergy to help you know what it's like um, and find other women. Uh, the women experience is different and unique. And there absolutely are women that fly through this process and have no bumps along the road. I wish that that was the normal story, but in my experience, it's not. And so hear the stories and listen and learn. Keep track of your paperwork your, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, like I, my paperwork was lost four times in Kansas city and I had to rebuild my entire folder and that was fell on me. That was my responsibility, even though they lost it. So not going to throw darts about what happened, but just ladies know where your paperwork is. Keep track of your licenses, know what the requirements are and how you met them and what you still need to do. One that caught me, and maybe I just missed the boat. Um, you need to get credit for your service. And that is a technical thing in the Church of the Nazarene. You can have a banker's box full of evidence that you've done ministry, and it will not get you ordained. You have to go to your senior pastor and get coded in on the district to get credit to go towards ordination. Make sure you do that process. If you are told no, you need to pursue that. Uh, this is not about you being nice. This is about you getting ordained. And I there that has a whole bunch of feelings and 
you know, am I being godly enough and Christ-like enough? Because God has called you to ministry, he wants you to get through that process. And so you need to do your part and make sure you're getting credit for your work. I would also say like, trust your gut, ladies, speak up, go ask for help. Um, if you don't get the right answer from the first person you talk to, talk to someone else. Uh, this isn't the suffering Olympics. Jesus already died. He took mm -hmm. care of that. You don't have to do that. Um, you serve best when you have the resources you need, like food and rent and health care. You serve best when you have loving relationships that fill you up and you have space in your life to recharge after Sunday and you have people you can count on and trust them to keep your confidence. Um, and having those things is not exceptional. It's, it should be normal. And, and maybe that is the summary of all of this, both the nitty gritty and the, the more subjective. Take care of yourself because if you don't, no one else will. Um, I've been doing a decluttering project since January, really working to get through a lot of stuff that I've ignored. And one of the, the ways this um, has manifested in my thinking is I just have left so much stuff undone because I was always going and going and going because that was what was expected. And in the end, now 10 years later, I'm having to clean it all up and look at those leftover pieces and unfinished projects and, and even things that represent unfinished friendships. I, I don't think that's what God intends when he calls us to ministry. I think our ministry should be help moving us towards wholeness. Maybe that's an idealized vision. I don't know, but I would hope that your ministry leads you to wholeness. And if it's not doing that, then do the best you can to make it head that direction. <laughs> I love that you say wholeness. That's, that's, that's good Wesleyan theology. <laughs> we should always be moving towards wholeness. It should be the yeah. goal. Yeah. Uh, I know we do have, for, for, the, for my listeners who are Nazarene, we have a women clergy council at the, at the denominational level, at the headquarters level, and every district, at least here in USA, and I think Canada as well, um, has a representative. So I'm the rep for my district, in case my listeners don't know that. Great. Um, and, and, and so every district has one. Uh, find out who that is and uh, contact them because, you know, because they are able to help you navigate some of those questions. And I think, you know, those of us who are ordained, well, there's actually a paragraph in the manual that says your job as an ordained minister in the church is to mentor those who are coming behind you. And so that includes those practical things of, uh, hey, how are you listed in the journal yep. <laughs> so that you're getting credit? Um, you know, if you're going to go on and get a master's, you might, might want to think about whether or not this is going to help you to pay the bills as well, um, or is it just going to leave you with a bunch of debt? Uh, yeah. So we should be helping those who come behind us, you know, to discern and, and navigate those uh, elements of ministry. So I think that is good practical advice. And also that we should always be moving towards wholeness. <laughs> um, it's just a great reminder. I mean, that really is what 
Christ wants to do in us is he wants to make us whole again. Oh, this is a lot of good stuff. Thanks so much. I I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been great. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad that you're doing this and providing this resource for women in ministry. Um, We need that so much. I guess I, I guess I'd say that ladies, you are loved and you are cared for and you are enough. If you're getting messages, otherwise ask for help. It's okay. I wish I had, and, uh, you deserve to love this life that you've been called to. And so go forth and change the world. Amen. Amen.